coming up on Magical Medical Tour with co-host Dr. Glenn Woolman and special guest Dr. James Lake, an integrative holistic psychiatrist. Globally, one-third of the adults deal with some form of anxiety. What are the differences between how the East and West view anxiety? What are the causes and treatments? This and more coming up next here on YHTV. This week's episode is brought to you by Support the Mountain's Herbal Parasite Cleanse. This formula targets the small and large intestinal tracts and larvae, the most broad-spectrum formula available today. 100% organic, formulated by Dr. Mikio Sanki, author of the Esoteric Acupuncture Series. For 10% off your first bottle, visit shopyogahub.com and use the coupon code CLEANSE at checkout. Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. Thank you for joining us today for Anxiety. I'm Christina Suzuma, <laughs> and with me is our wonderful co-host and medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. Hello, Dr. Woolman. Greetings, Christina, and <laughs> greetings, everyone. Welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I am Dr. Glenn Wallman. I will be your medical guide today, along with Christina, as we travel through another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy this week in search of optimal health. So, Christina, right now we've got two world leaders with nuclear capabilities playing flinch. <laughs> we've got earthquakes, hurricanes, wildfires, tornadoes, mm. mass shootings, wars around the globe. People starving, people eating too much, health issues, <laughs> and refugees moving all over the planet. I wonder if there's much anxiety out there. Ooh. And that's, that's the reason we decided to have our favorite uh, holistic integrative psychiatrist, Dr. James Lake, who was with us on episodes 131 and 140. And today we're going to talk with him about anxiety. And I think that's a big issue going on right now. Mm. But before we do, Christina, how do people get in touch with us? Yes, thank you. Uh, good topic right now. Now, at any time during this show, you can feel free to ask a question or make a comment simply by scrolling down on your screen and typing it into the comment box. And, you know, this show could have been could have been recorded a month ago, two months ago, a year ago. Not to worry. Just post in your questions and we'll make sure um, if it's for our special guests, we will get it over to them. Or if it's for Dr. Woolman or myself, we will definitely make a point of answering you. Now, another way is to simply call us at 818-LET'S-TALK. 818-LET'S-TALK. And be sure to leave your name and contact information so that we can get back to you. Thank you so much, Doc. Uh, you're quite welcome. So I think anxiety is a big thing that's going on right now, and that's why we've asked Dr. Lake to come back uh, to speak with us about this. We're going to spend the entire uh, program today on anxiety. Mm. Dr. Mm -hmm. Lake, as you may remember from episodes 131 and 140, is or was a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Medicine at Stanford. He's also an author of many articles and books, and he has e-books that are out there uh, that are for mental health that you can uh, look at, and we'll have a link to that, and we may discuss in a little while. So welcome back, James. My pleasure to be back, Glenn and Christina. Thank you for the opportunity. Hello, hello. Thank you for being here. We need you right now. <laughs> so, James, let's let's get right into it. Uh, anybody that wants to find out about Dr. Lake can, as I said, look at episode 131 and episode 140, and that'll tell you many things about him. Um, and you'll learn more today, of course, but I want to make sure that we have as much time as possible to see about helping people with anxiety. So I guess the first thing is, what is anxiety? Okay. Anxiety is a, a chronic condition that probably affects one-third of adults at any given time on the planet globally. It's associated with a, a, um, a state of uh, tension psychological uh, stress um, because of um, uncertainty. 
about one's circumstances because of difficulties that one may have in a relationship, at work, and uh, in, in any area of social or psychological functioning. So, depending on where you view anxiety from, um, you will see it as a different kind of thing. In Western medicine, we think of it as a chronic condition related to, um, to changes in neurotransmitters, which is the basis of treatment using medications. In Asian systems of medicine, Chinese medicine, Ayurvedic medicine, and so on, it's viewed as an energetic imbalance and is treated energetically. So depending on where you start from, you will understand anxiety in a different way, and you'll approach it in a different way. What what actually causes anxiety? I mean, you know, we, we know the signs and symptoms of it, like for someone with a sore throat, they might have a fever and difficulty swallowing, but we know the causes bacteria. So what causes anxiety? Is it hardware or is it software? Is it neurotransmitters, genetics? Where do we go with that? Very good question. Um, all of the above would be, be my answer to you, Dr. Wolman. Some people are genetically predisposed to have anxiety disorders. Um, for example, many people who um, have uh, social anxiety are related to people who have social anxiety. Their parents may have had social anxiety. The same holds true for obsessive compulsive disorder, which is a kind of anxiety disorder. Um, so there, there may be a genetic predisposition with respect to some kinds of so-called anxiety disorders. Uh, changes in neurotransmitters uh, might be related to chronic stress. Uh, an individual who is subjected to uh, stress from uh, difficulty uh, in a relationship, uh, difficulty in a work environment, or whatever stresses they may encounter. And Glenn, you named many that affect uh, millions of people globally, billions of people globally at this time. Hundreds of millions of refugees. There's never been a time of greater crisis for dislocation of people, uh, particularly in the Middle East, of course, and in Africa. There are um, dozens of fires raging as we speak within 100 miles of where I'm sitting. Um, thousands of homes have been burned. People have been killed. Um, there is enormous anxiety about uh, this, the direction of this country because of current political trends. I mean, there, there are compelling reasons for many people to have um, significant anxiety day to day. Um, and so I'm talking about social causes, uh, social issues, dislocation, if you happen to be a refugee, uh, chronic uh, uncertainty about your, your future income, your financial status, your health care, uh, everything going on with efforts to um, repeal um, the Affordable Care Act and so forth are a source of, I believe, significant ongoing anxiety for millions of Americans at this point in time. So there are a lot of uh, different ways to think about the causes of anxiety. And again, from the point of view of Western biomedicine, the idea is that chronic stress can lead to uh, changes in neurotransmitters, and those changes in neurotransmitters result in a feeling of uh, chronic uneasiness. This is the concept of anxiety from a Western medical perspective. And again, from the Asian medical perspective, it has to do with an energetic imbalance. I view these as different metaphors. I don't think we really can say what causes anxiety. I think it's quite different for each person in the context of his or her culture. We we know that everybody has anxiety. I'm sure you and I had anxiety in medical school when we had to take a test. But sometimes anxiety works on our favor to uh, make us study a little more or practice. Uh, before I, I did my first surgery, I was very anxious and practicing more and learning more. Uh, it became an advantage. But for many, it's not an advantage. When we look at you know, the movie Moonstruck, where Cher slaps Nicolas Cage and says, snap out of it, right? right. Uh, there, are, there are many people that can't snap out of it. What's, what is it that's different about them than us that can snap out of it? I believe by constitution, some people are more resilient in the face of chronic stress than other people. It depends on your upbringing. Uh, it's not clear what um, causes differences in resilience to anxiety, uh, to uh, responding to chronic stress, for example, in a way that becomes, um, mm, oh, I'm losing a word here, that interferes with your ability to function day to day. Mm. 
some people can go through the, the most difficult challenges in childhood or as adults, and because of their psychological resilience or their, I believe, their spiritual belief system that keeps them strong and resilient, they function well. Other people may have a happy, healthy childhood and have all the benefits of loving parents, but because they're more fragile, perhaps because of a genetic predisposition or some other stresses, they might become quite anxious early on in life. Do you have any statistics, uh, either in this country or worldwide, about how many people suffer from anxiety? As I mentioned uh, briefly, uh, my understanding is that at any, any given time, globally, approximately a, a third of adults have significant anxiety. And during the course of uh, the lifetime, it's almost certain that everyone will have anxiety, uh, typically generalized anxiety. Uh, but many people also experience um, um, transient uh, panic attacks. Panic is quite common. Uh, panic attacks may occur in the context of um, many kinds of other mental health problems. For example, agoraphobia, a fear of going outside of a place uh, because uh, you're concerned that you may have a panic attack. Um, panic attacks uh, may occur, often occur together with agoraphobia. Uh, panic attacks um, also occur in the context of, of um, post-traumatic stress disorder, of course, which is, a, which is a major concern now with all the returning veterans from the Middle East. So, And even, even people that uh, were, say, in Las Vegas at a concert, uh, I would imagine there will be many of those that have post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can, you can anticipate that, of course, all of the people who are wounded uh, escaping the mass shooting in Las Vegas last week will have some degree of uh, what's called uh, post-traumatic stress um, for some time. And hopefully they'll uh, find adequate care addressing yeah. those issues. You mentioned neurotransmitters. Uh, I wonder if you can uh, elucidate that a little bit more. I think it's it's fascinating that we, as scientists and physicians, have even found the concept of neurotransmitters and understanding the way they work uh, in the in the nervous system. Could you talk about that for just a moment or two? Sure. Um, many neurotransmitters are related indirectly or directly to anxiety disorders. There is not a, a clear, discrete, causal relationship between a particular neurotransmitter and a specific anxiety condition or disorder. Um, however, um, neurotransmitters including serotonin, norepinephrine, dopamine, and uh, GABA, gamma aminobutyric acid, are related to various degrees with anxiety. Chronic anxiety, for example, can cause uh, a relative increase in the level of uh, norepinephrine in the brain, uh, which is uh, kind of a, uh, a sister of epinephrine in, in, the, in the body, uh, which is one of the more activating neurotransmitters. And chronic stress, chronic anxiety states will cause an upregulation of, uh, of norepinephrine in the brain. And we'll talk about this in a little while because that's where we get into some of the treatments of uh Mm -hmm. of the anxiety disorders. But there it's not just one order disorder. You spoke about panic attacks and post-traumatic stress disorder. There's a, a number of, of uh, mental issues that go into this kind of a disorder. Can you briefly mention some of them? You mentioned a few already. Can you repeat? Can you clarify the question, Glenn? I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, I just what wanted asking. to talk about we t we talk about anxiety disorders, and you mentioned post traumatic stress disorder, panic attacks. There are many areas when we look at the DSM, uh, and mm -hmm. a psychiatrist is trying to do a differential diagnosis. There are many categories that can fall into this in some way. Can you talk about that? Of course. So, as a psychiatrist, as a Western medically trained physician. Uh, specializing in mental health, psychiatry. Uh, when a patient comes to us with a, a complaint of anxiety of whatever type, could be general anxiety, it could be panic attacks, it could be something following um, a trauma, and so forth, obsessions or compulsions, the first task as a medical doctor is to uh, make sure there are not underlying medical causes of the person's symptoms. 
For example, hyperthyroidism is a frequent cause of um, anxiety, especially panic attacks. Um, uh, heart arrhythmias, as you well know, Dr. Wolman, I'm sure you've encountered many mm -hmm. uh, patients uh, with this uh, condition, often result in panic attacks. So, uh, in fact, the, the first uh, experience of a panic attack uh, from in a person who was before that quite healthy and functioning well might might be uh, mistaken as a heart attack. An individual might have chest pain, a feeling of pressure, a uh, feeling of a regular heartbeat, for which they go to an emergency room. They're evaluated. Uh, they are medically cleared. They're rolled out for um, a heart attack, and they're sent to a psychiatrist with a provisional diagnosis of panic disorder. So that's a frequent um, presentation of um, panic attack uh, these days. It can strike you out of the blue. Um, people... Um, are going about their day-to-day -day life, and all of a sudden they're they're knocked down by a panic attack for no apparent reason. So um, there are again, as we already talked about, genetic predispositions that might uh, increase the likelihood that you will have an anxiety disorder, certain kinds of anxiety disorders at least, certain medications um, or or other biological substances can uh, cause anxiety as a side effect. In fact, uh, ironically, some medications in psychiatry used to treat anxiety can cause anxiety as an adverse effect. Some of these serotonin reuptake inhibitors, for example, sertraline, which is also called Zoloft, bupropion, which is also called Welbutrin, are used to treat anxiety, to generalize anxiety, but they may also cause anxiety as a um, side effect or uh, indirect consequence. So, social pressures, psychological pressures, relationship problems, work stress. You've already talked about uh, crises that people have been um, facing recently here, the mass shooting in Las Vegas, all the fires. All of these things can um, eventually result in a chronic state of heightened arousal in the autonomic nervous system, which manifests as anxiety in one manner or another. I you know, you talked about genetics as a possibility, and as part of uh, treatment, I'm looking a little bit maybe into the future right now for a second. If we find out at some point there are actual genes in the genome and sequences of genes that uh, can cause anxiety, how do you think the American Psychiatric Association will deal with the possibility of genetically modifying us as organisms to treat that. And you can answer that as a representative of the American Psychiatric Society and also as a holistic integrative practitioner. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, first I need to clarify that um, I'm no longer a card-carrying member of the American Psychiatric Association. I was once active in the APA, but involved uh, in uh, the work to bring alternative and integrative medicine to the APA. But I haven't been active in that organization for some time now. Um, my thinking uh, from my general reading um, and, and knowledge of this area is that there are many um, many issues involved in your question. It's a very complicated one. There's the ethical issue, of course, of whether it would be ethically uh, defensible to modify uh, someone's genes or the, the genes of, of people who might be predisposed to anxiety. Um, so that they would less likely experience anxiety. So these are ethical issues. In what circumstances would it be, that would be appropriate, defensible, um, ethically sound? Um, in terms of um, the APA or um, pharmaceutical firms uh, responding to uh, a finding uh, that may take place in the future of a gene or genes that underlies certain anxiety conditions, I'm sure that would lead to great interest and great excitement about the possibility of, um, of uh, modifying uh, those genes, or more likely initially at least modifying the expressions of those genes at the level of neurotransmitters using uh, very specific pharmacological um, interventions. They can, they can address and correct the neurotransmitter uh, abnormalities that are associated with genes that are found in the future to cause anxiety states. Mm -hmm. So you can direct, you can approach it in two levels, I guess, from the point of view of Western medicine. One would be to modify genes, and that uh, results in some ethical quandaries that need to be addressed in that context. And second, probably um, sooner 
because the technology exists to do that already, um, find um, pharmacologic interventions that can that can treat those um, neurotransmitter dysregulations associated with um, genes that cause anxiety. Uh, let's talk about that for a few minutes. Uh, Christina, do you have any questions before we talk about some of the treatments? Any thoughts right now? Uh, no, I'm 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 right on edge, wanting to know more about these treatments and uh, from the east and west perspective. You're a little anxious. I'm anxious. <laughs> That's why you know, I get to bounce. <laughs> you know, he said, uh, Doctor Lake said there are one in three, and there are three of us here talking right now. So. I- <laughs> I'm just wondering. Well, I get my ball to relieve stress, remember? (laughs) There you go. So I guess it's either you or me, James. So let's guess it's both of us. Yeah, (laughs) that's possible. Well, then we are helping three other groups of people. They they don't have to have someone. So in terms of treatments right now, what's available to us as physicians from the Western point of view first. Mm-hmm. Okay, there are many treatments from the conventional um, Western point of view. Um, and uh, as you know, um, we're in the same business. These are medications that target uh, neurotransmitters uh, that are implicated in anxiety. For example, serotonin, dopamine, norepinephrine, GABA. Uh, these are the principal neurotransmitters that are treated using available medications. Serotonin reuptake inhibitors are widely used to treat anxiety disorders, um, and they're quite effective uh, much of the time. Uh, I don't want to name uh, particular medications because that would uh, might appear as an implicit in- endorsement. Uh, my understanding is that most of them work uh, relatively uh, equally with respect to treating anxiety disorders. So it's about finding um, a particular medication that works best for each unique patient given his or her symptoms and their history of treatment response um, before you see them, before you're trying what you're uh, giving them at this point in time. In addition to SSRIs, um, there are um, medications that are often quite helpful for anxiety, depending on the type of anxiety. Beta blockers, as you know, Dr. Wallman, uh, propranolol mm. is being uh, the principal one used for the treatment of anxiety. Buspirone, which also um, affects some of the serotonin uh, receptors in the brain, are often quite effective for treating generalized anxiety. Uh, A medication called gabapentin um, is quite effective, I've found, for the treatment of generalized anxiety, even severe generalized anxiety. And then um, for more severe anxiety or for panic attacks, Um, The benzodiazepine medications are frequently used, although there are um, appropriate controls in uh, the number and um, the um, amount of benzodiazepines uh, prescribed to patients, because as we know, they are potentially uh, addictive, which can become a significant issue for patients who have uh, severe anxiety disorders who might be at risk for taking more and more benzodiazepines, for example, clonazepam, diazepam, lorazepam, and so forth, uh, to treat anxiety. And as they take more and more of the medication, they can develop tolerance to the effects of the medication, take more and more, and and before they're aware of the problem, they become addicted to the medication. So in, um, in conventional biomedical psychiatry, we're moving away from prescribing uh, benzodiazepines, habit-forming medications for anxiety, and we're focusing more on prescribing the non-habit-forming medications, such as the SSRIs, such as beta blockers, such as gabapentin, which can be quite effective without the risk of dependence. There are, you talk about risk and side effects. Uh, I see a lot of people uh, many of my clients that have come up with that, that never really had anxiety before, but developed some kind of a disease, say something in the hospital, a side effect of a surgical procedure that became uh, devastating to their lives. And then they developed anxiety and then they were also put on uh, anti-anxiolytic uh, medications. And now you've got this confusion of is it the medication itself or an anxiety that's causing problems? How do you deal with that? It's mm-hmm. a very good question. 
you you try to tease out what is what, and oftentimes it's difficult to know exactly what is what. For example, medications can um, cause anxiety. Uh, the the appropriate expected response to the stress of a of a surgical procedure can cause anxiety, um, and the individual is experiencing both at the same time. So my my uh, understanding of situations like that, these would be primarily patients encountered in the, in the ho- inpatient setting in the hospital, would be that both factors play a role in anxiety. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that case, typically what happens is that uh, the patient is started on a, a very potent anti-anxiety medication when still hospitalized. For example, a benzodiazepine like clonazepam or lorazepam. And over uh, weeks following discharge, assuming they do okay medically, they're transitioned to a less potent anti-anxiety medication, such as an SSRI, and instructed to use the benzodiazepine as needed only to treat any um, recurring anxiety symptoms. Many of these patients also have uh, significant pain, post-surgical pain, and the benzodiazepines and some medications used for anxiety and depression can be helpful for the management of post-surgical pain. So you follow a trajectory, uh, managing symptoms as they arise, which are different in each unique uh, case. And the idea is to manage risk, contain risk, which translates into using those medications that are less likely to be habit-forming mm-hmm. and transitioning from habit-forming medications like benzodiazepines to the non-habit-forming medications as soon as you can. Are You know, you talked about uh, people getting addicted uh to the medications and it becomes tolerance. Is there a possibility like we're looking at now uh, with antibiotics that uh, there's resistant strains of bacteria now? Will there be resistance rather than tolerance to some of these medications at any point? I think the, I think the concept of um, tolerance is the one that um, fits the problem that we encounter when um, uh, people take a potent benzodiazepine medication because it has to do with uh, what happens at the level of neurotransmitter receptors in the brain. It's, a, it's kind of a pharmaco- pharmacologic um, mechanism. Um, uh, resistance, on the other hand, as, you've, uh, as you pointed out, has to do with a, 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 a microbe, a microorganism, developing uh, genes that permit it to um, continue to to stay alive and function in the face of a chemical that um, that was lethal before now. They've evolved mechanisms to survive these antibiotics that until recently uh, uh, were able to eradicate them. So these are two different kinds of things. One has to do with the response at a genetic level by a microbe to a toxin. And that would be the case of antibiotics. And in the case of um, um, dependence to uh, dependence in the context of prolonged use of benzodiazepine, it has to do with changes at the level of pharmacologic mechanisms in the brain involving neurotransmitter receptors. Do you think that we as a microorganism or a macroorganism uh, recognizing that something is changing our molecular consciousness, so to speak, uh, that we might, uh, as a protective device for ourselves, try and uh, develop a resistance? I know I'm going off on a tangent here. I guess I'm not sure I understand the question. I'm, I'm uh, not sure I was what just, you're getting at. Well, yeah, I think, well, we were talking about microorganisms that recognize something toxic to it. And we're also organisms. And some of these things are uh, behave, patterns of behavior that we've developed uh, for various reasons for s- sustenance or sustainability of our own uh, patterns. And I'm wondering if we might be able to think that somewhere down the line on a molecular level, our own brain is figuring out a way to change this because this is the way this brain wants to deal with things. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, That's an interesting idea you pose. I I think of it somewhat differently. Um, I, I imagine that... Um, there might be a, more of a collective social response to shared concerns about becoming a, a medication-dependent uh, society, as all affluent Western societies have become. 
And there might be a meme, I believe there are memes, there's a kind of culture thought form, a meme that's emerging, I believe, through your uh, your show, the Yoga TV show, as well as other uh, uh, organizations that are committed to spreading information about alternative health care that might lead to a, a collective resistance, if you will, toward the notion of taking medications for everything, that this is not a healthy um, kind of way to be as a society, as an informed society. So I, I view it more as something that might more likely take place at the level of uh, shared consciousness within a society and be transmitted by, um, by culturally informed information in, in the manner of a meme, uh, the communication of a... Of a, of a very uh, cogent thought that can change beliefs and behaviors. Perhaps down the road, um, as if genetic engineering and bioengineering and, and some of the futuristic ideas um, take place, which might involve eventually the, the ability to upload consciousness into a, an intelligent robot, there might be then the capacity to um, re-engineer brain circuits and so forth so that these kinds of uh, medications and biomedical interventions would no longer be necessary or relevant. But I see that as happening, you know, long in the future, probably decades into the future, if in this century at all. That's pretty interesting. I like that. Um, are there any cures? In Western medicine, there are a few cures, both on the medical side and certainly on the psychiatric side. In psychiatry, on a good day, we can treat and we can ameliorate symptoms, but we can almost never eradicate or eliminate symptoms. That has to do with a limited understanding in current biomedicine about the causes of symptoms of mental illness. Uh, we have some vague understanding that anxiety, as we've been discussing today, is related to changes in neurotransmitter activity or level in the brain. But we can't really say that particular changes in neurotransmitters uh, are discrete uh, causes of particular anxiety states or disorders. We have a very incomplete understanding of the complex web of mechanisms uh, that are causes of anxiety disorders or any other kind of so-called psychiatric disorder. It happens at the level of um, immune system. It happens at the level of the fight-or-flight parts of the brain. Um, which are mediated by norepinephrine and so forth. Uh, it happens at multiple levels in the body and brain. So there's not a single discrete cause. Um, you don't understand the complex interactions between causes within this web of, of causes. Therefore, we don't have tools that can adequately and completely address all those potential causes. Um, what we can do on a good day is recommend a particular medication and hopefully also um, lifestyle changes and mind-body practice, uh, changes in diet perhaps, more exercise, that can indirectly address um, those causes and result in um, improved functioning and hopefully generally reduced anxiety. You just started to allude to some of the other uh, choices other than just medications, uh, like mindfulness, meditation, uh, group uh, functions, etc. What are some of the other things and what are some of the other ways that other countries deal with anxiety that don't have GABA and uh, the, the other medications that we have? Yeah, this is a very important point, a very good question. Um, within, as, as I mentioned, within affluent Western countries, so-called post-industrial society, we have this in hand, at least affluent individuals in Western society have this in hand because um, we have access to medications that we can take and they will um, typically control symptoms well enough so there aren't concerns, they're, they're, the symptoms are no longer impairing, you're able to function well enough if you take a medication that works, assuming it's safe, it doesn't cause side effects and so forth. I always begin, uh, let me talk about what I do when I, when I meet a patient who is complaining of anxiety, I always begin by taking an inventory of, of their lifestyle and try to understand factors in their uh, personal, professional life that might be driving anxiety, might be making it worse or interfering with their response to whatever treatment they may be trying. 
Um, and then uh, before I begin to uh, even uh, even engage a patient with a, with uh, uh, information about medications and so forth, I talk about lifestyle changes. There's there's good uh, evidence supporting the use of simple lifestyle changes in anxiety as well as depression and other common mental health problems. For example, people who exercise even as little as 30 minutes three times a day uh, will have significantly less um, three times a day or three times a week? Thank you. Three times a week. <laughs> three times a week. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Three times a day would be better. But people <laughs> who exercise as little as uh, 30 minutes, um, three times a week, thank you, uh, experience significant reduction in generalized anxiety. They function better in all ways. Um, people who get enough sleep function better. They're, they tend to be less anxious. People who have general anxiety, who, who uh, reduce or eliminate caffeine from their diet, of course, are less anxious. These are basic lifestyle interventions that are quite effective. After that, um, I often uh, teach my patients, inform them of the value of mindfulness and mind-body work. Yoga, um, for example, meditation, many styles of meditation, many styles of yoga practice. Um, these things come before discussions of medications. If you, um, particularly among patients who are interested in doing more and other than taking medications to treat their health and mental health problems, they want to know what else can work for them. Simple lifestyle changes can often work. Uh, and again, mind, mindfulness training can often help. People who do these things and take medications often do quite well on lower doses of medications. And they may need to take them uh, for a shorter period of time uh, before they can go off of them. We, we agree that uh, everybody has some anxiety at different points. And I wonder, could it be just like hunger, a natural protective device, uh, you know, thirst, hunger, anxiety to, to warn you that something may be happening? So sure. it's really something normal. So if that, if you agree with that as a premise, do you think that we should be teaching children that about anxiety and how to deal with it at an early age rather than waiting for someone to become uh, pathological and then have to work backwards? So you're pointing to uh, the current evolutionary uh, theory about anxiety and the pervasiveness of anxiety, why this kind of thing affects um, virtually everyone at one point or other in, in the lifespan. Um, we're talking about a, a predisposition among um, humans, I think many other mammals, probably other, other animals, um, to, to have what's called a fight-or-flight response in the face of acute stress a situation that might be life-threatening. Um, it was adaptive initially to respond that way, to respond by running away or getting ready to uh, stand and fight a life-threatening situation um, tens of thousands of years ago. Uh, the majority of, well, I can't say that anymore, um, billions of people on the planet no longer have to face life-threatening circumstances, but we still have those evolved parts of the brain that respond in the same way that they evolved to respond to millions of years ago in our early evolution. So what happens is that um, a, a stress response that was adaptive through the course of the most of evolutionary, human evolutionary history is maladaptive. People over-respond and they respond in a way that interferes with their ability to cope with the immediate stress. The parts of the brain that, that function uh, in evolutionary time frames continue to take over these days, even when there's not a life-threatening event that you're facing. The amygdala, as you know, fires up um, the part of the limbic system in the brain, the, the, the old part of the brain, and takes over. A person has an extreme response to stress. If that continues again and again, because the stress continues, the, the person cannot get away from stress, or they can't manage with chronic stress in a more adaptive way, that changes brain activity. That chronic um, firing of the amygdala and other parts of the brain result 
and elevations and neurotransmitters and changes in brain circuitry that manifest as anxiety disorders, post-traumatic stress and other anxiety disorders. So what was once very adaptive and built into our uh, brain hardware, uh, in many circumstances in modern society, becomes maladaptive. Uh, so do, do Buddhist monks have anxiety? I can speak to that. I've known many Tibetan Buddhist monks, at least, and, and many of them do have anxiety because um, they have an enormous amount to um, to uh, deal with um, doing their spiritual practice, particularly if they continue to reside in, in Asian countries. They have a lot going on. Having said that, um, people who are very adept meditators, monks and others who, who practice mindfulness meditation technique and have become very adept at that, have a remarkable capacity to get away from anxiety and to function, even in the most difficult circumstances you and I could imagine. I think that um, I heard a story, an apocryphal story, about the Dalai Lama uh, from uh, a colleague of mine. They were flying over the Himalayas, and uh, they ran into severe turbulence. They thought they were going down. There was a storm, uh, I, I believe somewhere over India, flying from one small town to another on one of his tours many years ago. People were terrified. Everyone uh, looked back to see the Dalai Lama to make sure he was okay. And um, this person who conveyed this story to me um, was astonished because he was not only calm, but he was chuckling. He was, he was kind of <laughs> laughing. And they noticed that he was absorbed in watching these uh, bits of paper that had been on the floor of the plane that were moving in a pattern in the air and the turbulence, and he thought that was rather humorous. He was so uh, able to be so present in the moment that he was engaged fully in that experience without a mind toward worrying about what might happen in the next uh, next few moments in the in the turbulence. So that would never happen are, to me. That would never, yeah. Some people are quite adept. This is an extreme form of uh, adaptability and resilience, which people who are spiritually adept can achieve. You talked about uh, anxiety and other diseases. Uh, I'm wondering also about end of life. We're going to be doing an interview with Katie Ortlip and Yana Beecham uh, based on their new book, Living with Dying, which is a great manual. Uh, that's that's going to be an up-and-coming interview. But what are your thoughts and on anxiety near end of life and the possibilities of treatments such as LSD or hallucinogenics? It's a very good question and a very topical question in today's society, particularly in Western culture, um, where we can expect to live to a healthy old age and uh, we will have time to do spiritual and, and deep psychological work preparing for our dying and ultimately our death. I think there's a lot of very important work ongoing as I'm sure you know, uh, on um, psychedelics to help people feel calm, not just feel calm, but achieve states of deep insight and clarity in the moments or days before death. Um, LSD, I think psilocybin's been used. Um, Stan Groff has explored that. Uh, Charles Grobe have, has explored that. In fact, they have been funded by the National Institutes of Health. Um, I believe the organization that, that sponsors most of the studies that are ongoing is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, or MAPS. So my feeling is that's a fundamentally important area of research and clinical practice. It's difficult, challenging these days to find a physician or other Western-trained healthcare provider who knows about uh, these treatments and who can guide you through them in a safe an ethically sound way. So there, there are layers there that haven't yet been addressed <clears throat> completely, at least. I mm. think that um, as, as people, my medical training happened um, uh, in California at the University of California Medical School in the, uh, the peak of the AIDS uh, academic in the mid-80s. And uh, I had the um, the opportunity to um, work with many people who came in with fulminant AIDS for whom we had no treatments at that time. We kept them comfortable and uh, we, uh, we, uh, we did what we could with very few uh, measures at that time, as you know, 
Dr. Wolwin. We treated them symptomatically and kept them comfortable, but we could not prevent their death after very difficult uh, different difficult illnesses affecting their lungs and their brains and their bodies. Um, I think that people who manage to die skillfully, I'll use that word, die with a, uh, a sense of self hmm. uh, intact in, in those days are people who had done a lot of spiritual or deep psychological work. You could see a difference uh, between the people who had done a lot of work and others who had uh, who had to face the same kind of very difficult circumstances, um, but uh, who had not done their work. They had not done their homework, if you will. People were often terrified. Um, they were uh, beside themselves. They had no idea of how to go to that next place. Um, and, and I'd like to also mention that uh, when, as you get close to uh, dying, or as you have um, crisis, that may uh, increase your risk of dying in the next moments. Uh, many people, I believe the majority of people, have what is called a near-death experience, which I believe is kind of an evolved adaptation that permits people to feel calm uh, and remain still in the face of um, an extreme situation that might likely result in your imminent death. So uh, there are built-in adaptations in humans, and I believe probably other mammals, certainly, and many perhaps other animals, other species, that can help with this uh, peaceful transition from life into death. And I think we, people are understanding that more as the years go. Yeah. We uh, talked with Dr. Quacko a few episodes ago, and we discussed some near end-of-life experiences. And I like the way you talk about that as uh, dying skillfully. I saw that so often in the emergency department where people that had done their work, their homework, their spiritual process uh, died much more gracefully uh, than those that hadn't. In many cases, not always. I've seen the same. Yeah, you know, it's it's hard to predict how an individual will face or embrace, if you will, their dying. It has to do with their resilience. It has to do with um, where they are in life, whether they have achieved goals that have been important to them. Of course, their spiritual work it has to do with the, uh, the uh, kind of medical issues they may be dealing with in the last moments, how much pain or distress they're dealing with. It's extremely hard to die skillfully or with grace. It's, uh, I think it's the hardest work that one can do, that everyone will have to do. <laughs> that's, that's important and very true. Uh, we talk about the future uh, of uh, medicine and treatments for mental disorders. And technically, in a sense, from a technical point of view, we are in the future. Uh, do you do any work with virtual reality exposures in dealing with... Uh, Anxiety? I have followed uh, the technology in virtual reality exposure for some years now. I have not used that directly in my own clinical practice, but I often uh, recommend it and try to refer uh, anxious patients where appropriate to clinics where that treatment is available. Uh, for many years now, uh, virtual reality graded exposure therapy, as it's called, has been established as the most effective uh, treatment, bar none, for specific phobias, uh, fear of flying, <clears throat> fear of heights, um, other specific phobias, fear of spiders, and so forth. Um, it works better, uh, it works faster, uh, without the risk of uh, dependency on benzodiazepines for these kinds of phobias. And so I often recommend it. I believe it's possible now to, um, to engage in virtual reality exposure therapy uh, from your home, um, online, with a clinic where you can work with a, a professional uh, therapist who knows the various techniques. And that's a very important fact uh, because, uh, by definition, people who have agoraphobia, severe agoraphobia, are so impaired that they are not able to leave their homes and go to a clinic. So if they can get online and sit and do an exposure exercise or several uh, a week with a therapist, Eventually, they will respond well enough so that they're no longer impaired. They can begin to get out of the house and function again. 
So I think there's a revolution, uh, not only in terms of virtual reality exposure, but other kind of high-tech, we call them transformative tech interventions uh, that can be used to treat and also evaluate um, mental and emotional functioning. Can you explain it a little? Which one? Virtual reality exposure? Yeah, just explain it so uh, others may get, I mean, it may be obvious, but just in case someone isn't quite sure what we're talking about now, how it works and what what they do. So in virtual reality exposure therapy, uh, the idea is that the individual is exposed to an extremely um, stimulating uh, virtual environment. Uh, a non-real environment using advanced computer technology. Um, For example, head-mounted display that can give you um, a sense of a three-dimensional experience in space. There are um, devices called haptic gloves that you can put on a hand that can give you the sense that your hand is moving in virtual space as you play a game or as we're discussing today, as you engage in a, a virtual therapy session. Um, often there's a, um, a high-fidelity um, earpiece, and a therapist is sitting with you, or if you're doing your therapy online, is guiding you through um, steps and a, a kind of a, an exposure uh, protocol, if you will, in which you're going from um, initially um, a situation that is designed to cause mild anxiety and and uh, adapting to it using cognitive and behavioral approaches for calming, such as deep breathing, guided imagery. And then in subsequent sessions, you will use, you will be exposed to more and more um, intense or more anxiety-provoking images, depending on the, the disorder that you're approaching. And you will use cognitive and behavioral approaches to relax deep breathing again. You'll listen to the cues and the advice of the therapist who is guiding you through and, and so to speak, with you in the virtual environment. And eventually you get to a point where you are able to use cognitive behavioral approaches quite effectively for self-calming so that you might, for example, be in a virtual environment with a snake that using your haptic glove you might touch in the virtual environment and manage through through regular breathing and other approaches to keep your heart rate nice and calm and avoid uh, a panic response. This type takes place over many days or weeks. It's a matter of practicing it and in doing so changing the, the way the circuits of the brain that mediate anxiety and panic fire. So you're slowing down those parts of the brain, bringing them to a nice calm place through this repeated exposure and response prevention, as it's called. You learn how to not respond with panic or elevated anxiety or an inappropriate behavior uh, that might interfere with your functioning through repeated exposure, uh, in this case to a virtual environment, a non-real environment. So it follows essentially the same approaches that are used in um, and exposure therapy that came, of course, decades before virtual exposure therapy, where a person would go out in an environment, um, a person who might be terrified of driving, fear have a fear of driving, and would initially sit in a car in a parking lot and use deep breathing to stay calm. Therapists would go with them and guide them through that process. And after doing that several times, they might drive around in the parking lot until they felt safe and calm and were able to use these cognitive uh, techniques to remain calm and centered. Eventually, as you can see over weeks, the individual will be able to return to normal driving behavior, highways and so forth, uh, through, through graded exposures to more intense and more frightening environments in the real world. Virtual reality exposure therapy has taken those general concepts and put them into the virtual world. It's beautiful. And and aside from just the virtual reality, they also have you hooked up in many cases to, as you alluded, to biofeedback mechanisms. So you mm-hmm. can measure you can measure respirations and pulse and maybe even pupil dilation, et cetera. Correct. Uh, 
And then I think one of the things that that might be a future treatment is when you talk about parts of the brain that are connecting, the amygdala, the limbic system, the hippocampus, all of these, uh, I wonder if we'll be able to at some point actually as human organisms be able to focus through a meditative state or some kind of a practice to actually switch off and switch on parts of the brains that are either overacting or inhibiting that, that will help us in many of these mental disorders. So I think you're talking about the area that has been called brain-computer interface. And I've been attending conferences on this for some years now. There's an annual, <clears throat> actually it's a, um, a biannual meeting here in Asilomar, near to where I live, the uh, Society for Brain-Computer Interface. And these are uh, technologies that can be used to um, translate information from the brain to um, peripheral technologies that can interpret and then um, provide information going back to the brain through feedback and modulate brain activity uh, that might be undesirable or maladaptive. For example, we're talking about anxiety today. Um, EEG biofeedback uh, can be modulated um, in the context of a virtual exposure a protocol, for example, using brain-computer interface technology and slow down the activity, so to speak, slow brain activity and to alleviate symptoms of generalized anxiety and other kinds of anxiety disorders. I think that is the future. I think these are uh, clearly technologies that are emerging and they'll have significant supporting research to show that they are effective and safe. And I expect that even within the next five to 10 years, we'll see these technologies displacing many of the, uh, many of the medication therapies, the pharmacotherapies that we're using. I think they work as well, in some cases better and they're safer. Um, so I, think I, have a, I have a question, um, Dr. Lake, um, uh, going back to simplicity and <laughs> away from technology. Um, have, you, have you heard of laughter yoga? I have not, Christine. I have to say, I haven't heard of laughter yoga. It, it was uh, brought up to us, uh, I think, back in 2010 or so when we we're doing one of our virtual conferences um, about meditation. And it was uh, a core of people that that it was a yogi that came up with it and and so it was laughing for a certain amount of time every day whether it be an artificial laugh uh, where you're tricking the body and the brain that and to increase the endorphins and to create balance in one's life, especially if they're dealing with anxiety and depression, those sort of imbalances, um, that if you are able to do it 10 to 15 minutes a day, like you would a physical exercise, even if you are not happy, but you you like yeah. make the sound of laughter, ha, 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 ha. And, yeah. and it, it sort of begins to trigger the chemical balance of the body, this is, this is what came from the Ayurvedic side. Um, yeah. And there were seeing tremendous results where people were coming off of medications and um, actually healing from certain imbalances of the body, not just of the mind, but mm -hmm. sort of creating oh, that energy. So what do you think about that? Well, I, I'm going back in my memory to Norman Cousins in the early days, I want to say in the 70s and 1980s in Los Angeles, where I believe he was hospitalized. I believe he had had a, a heart attack. Um, and at that time, individuals were told to uh, have strict bed rest. Mm -hmm. And I believe, uh, I, I may be mistaken about what his diagnosis or prognosis were, but he did some research. And from the hospital bed, he uh, decided that the most effective treatment, if you will, that he can engage in would be constant laughter. Mm. So he had all of his friends bring in, uh, at that time, uh, video cassette tapes, and he would be laughing and laughing up a storm and having a great time. And he did get better, and he did live for several more years. Often, um, when I'm working with patients who are uh, depressed more so than anxious, I recommend what I call laughter therapy. Because, as you said, Christine, uh, it does uh, change not only neurotransmitters, that affect mental health, but it, it uh, rebalances the entire body. It improves immune functioning. Mm. We know a lot about that. Laughter improves immune functioning. People who have more of a sense of humor and laugh more have uh, more immunocompetence, if you will. They're healthier. They tend to be healthier. So if it comes up and if it's appropriate in the context of therapy, 
and it's, and it can often be a very uh, sensitive issue um, because you, the last thing you you want is for a patient to perceive that you may be make, making light of their suffering. Mm. But if a patient uh, makes a humorous quip and it's it's clear that they have a sense of humor, you can use that and you can encourage them to find a way to laugh, even though they they don't feel like laughing, they don't feel like doing anything. So. Guys, uh, you know, for, from, for men, I often recommend uh, getting old Monty Python <laughs> movies, you know, that level of bizarre. That made me laugh. <laughs> uh, yeah, stu- I call it stupid boy humor, adolescent humor. For women who are more sophisticated and subtle with their humor, you know, other things, uh, maybe Woody Allen movies, ironic <laughs> romantic comedies, you know. So um, I think laughter is, is a very important part of mental health. And mental health care, I haven't used it or um, recommended it so much in the context of anxiety as for depression. Mm. But it's a good idea. I'll, I'll keep that in mind. Mm. Thank you for that. Yeah. I use that in the emergency department quite often, especially with kids. If I can make them laugh while they were gonna, about to get sutured, uh, it changed everything. Yeah. Um, I have I have one more question before we come to the end of our show. I was listening to a podcast the other day that in sight. Sao Paulo, Brazil, psychotherapists and sometimes psychiatrists go out into the park and they set up these little chairs where people can come and talk to them about their anxieties or mental illnesses just out in the park. And uh, they seem to have some very successful results with that. Do you have any familiarity with that? Do we have anything like that in the United States? I think it's a wonderful idea. I am not aware of... um therapy being done in that way, either in group or individual form in this culture. I've been to Cuba recently, as I mentioned before we started the show today, um, where a group of psychiatrists and psychologists met with the leaders of mental health care in Cuba, uh, where um, clinicians are um, much more open to going into uh, local communities and meeting with people in neighborhoods and facilitating conversations and and healing group dialogue, if you will. But I'm not familiar with with such innovations in the U.S. I hope that they are taking place. We're coming to the end of our show, James, and it's time for a uh, health tip. Okay, so my my health tip today has to uh, do with what we're looking forward to in the next few months, the, the holidays, and the predictable stress around the holidays uh, with family and relatives who you may choose to distance yourself from most of the year. Uh, Taking time away from work might be stressful, Uh, dealing with illnesses, dealing with any number of stresses in the economy where you live live in your workplace. So my tip is to not wait until anxiety and stress become overwhelming and interfere with your ability to work and function and be in a relationship. My tip, my recommendation, if you will, is to do things in a proactive and preventive way. If you're interested in yoga, resume your yoga practice. If you've done meditation before, get out your zafu, get out your get out your uh, cushion, and begin to uh, re-engage your your meditation practice. If you enjoy listening to music for relaxation, for calming, take time every day, uh, preferably a few times a day, listen to calming music. Um, guided imagery can be very helpful. Uh, make sure you get enough sleep. Make sure you uh, keep active 30 minutes, uh, three times a week. <laughs> Meditation, even uh, exercise, even light exercise is often beneficial. Watch your diet. Basics, lifestyle management aimed at prevention rather than waiting until you have a problem and then needing to treat it with a medication. Very, very nice. I agree with that, and I know Christina agrees with that. Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, we're very grateful to our special guest, Dr. James Lake, for coming back uh, again and uh, honoring us with his experience and expertise. <laughs> I'd like to thank all of my teachers and all of my healers, Yoga Hub, uh, Christina and Segovia, and all of our world global audience uh, participating with Magical Medical Tour. Look forward to getting together again on Magical Medical Tour again when we travel through another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy. And until then, I wish you all optimal health. 
Thank you, Dr. Lake, for gifting us with your expertise again. And of course, Dr. Woolman for another great show. You know, we would like to thank each and every one of you for joining us in this new platform of education and information. We're grateful for your continuous support, and we look forward to hearing your feedback on how we can serve you better. You can connect with Dr. Woolman through his website, glennwoolman.com, where you can learn about his metaphor square breath. Or follow him on Facebook at The Medical Guide. Also, you can connect with Dr. Lake through his website, ProgressivePsychiatry.com. ProgressivePsychiatry.com. And of course, this will be listed on the website as well as other links that he'd like to share with you and uh, links also to his um, ebooks that are available. We hope that you have enjoyed this moment here on YHTV and it has supported you or a loved one in some way. And we invite you to take a moment to like us or subscribe to our YouTube channel. You know, this would really help broaden the message that we attempt to share with others globally. And again, we're very grateful for any feedback and comments, suggestions. You can type them in on the site or give us a call at 818-LET'S-TALK. 818-LET'S-TALK. Thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, namaste. We know that the uh, systems of sound and hearing uh, start in the uterus very early. Uh, mm-hmm. And we learn about sound through vibration. And one of the interesting things that I did in my research is, you know, there's the certain frequency of sounds that we hear in the human ear. And then there's sounds that are below that frequency and above that frequency. And within the realms of medicine and healing, medicine, Western medicine uses the sounds that are above the hearing sounds. <laughs>